I was getting calls from my distributors, boots on the ground, going, Tony, there's nothing here. No one made movies during the pandemic except one group. One group that I know of continued to make movies, and that was the Gorilla Filmmakers, and that was, we called them Urban Films, and they were a lot of them were being made in Oakland. And welcome to Best in Fest. Um, I'm the director of the La Femme International Film Festival, and this is a podcast for people who want to learn everything about making TV and film in the industry. Um, I want to welcome today our wonderful guest, Tony Boldy, who is amazing. Uh, He is the founder and CEO of Life Force Foundations, which is a four-cause organization focused upon global and local social concerns. He's a West Coast Director of Acquisitions for Blairwood Entertainment and is a Director of Celebrity Memberships at a at many uh, top PR event firms, one of which is called Fame, located in Hollywood, California. He is a writer. He's a director, uh, distribution, financier. I think there's nothing that he hasn't done being in the industry. In fact, he started off as an actor so we're gonna go all the way back to the beginning welcome tony what on earth brought you and called you to the entertainment world first as an actor and then how you segued from that to you know behind the scenes well i want to thank you so much for having me we i've been here 26 years in la and i know you and i have crossed paths and we're going to figure out how i know obviously from your big stuff right we know your festival is doing really well and the reality shows and, and, and the movies and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, our dear friend, Valerie McCaffrey, who we both love so much. But um, we haven't really pinpointed how we directly know each other, but it's a small world here in Hollywood. So I always say I fall forward, right? We all fall. We all learn from our mistakes. If we're smart, we try not to make them twice and we fall forward. So I decided to leave Michigan where I was, uh, you know, I'd owned three restaurants and I'd been in the music world and DJed and drums and got a little record deal and traveled out here you know the typical find your way here and i fell in love with the weather to be brutally honest it was the weather that keeps me here but then the industry i was working in the restaurant industry and i didn't like it so much here as i did in the midwest there's a different mentality here it's a little bit more um really focused on being successful and, and it's cutthroat and i didn't like the cutthroatness of it i like the you know how we work together and where i'm from and it's it's not really the case here. Everyone's it's competitive. It's very competitive, kind of like the film industry. So I looked for other things to do. I ended up managing Mel's Drive-In when we first opened on Sunset Boulevard, which was the heyday. That was the place to go. That was the nightclub of nightclubs. That was it. Yeah, absolutely. And I probably made more money there in most businesses just letting people in that front door. You know, they would tip a hundred dollars here, a hundred dollars here, a hundred dollars there. And I was like, but I met people. You know, I, I managed Dublin's as well, which was hot across from Roxbury, and, and now it's called Pink Taco. But, it, you know, you meet people on Sunset Boulevard. And so they recommended a couple things that I try. And I think your podcast is a great way for people to learn how to get into the industry. And then when you're in, how to stay in the industry and then succeed in the industry. So, you know, I recommend anyone that's listening to this, listen to a lot of past podcasts as well. But y- you find yourself learning on the job. You don't come in fully prepared. I I don't, you know, I've done over 2000 jobs in Hollywood and I still learn something on every single set I'm on. And I still say hi to everybody as if they're my best friend. And that's how you and I reconnected on third street, right? You were shooting a show and I saw cameras and my little spidey senses went off and I asked, who's the boss? They recommend, they said you were, and you and I just started talking and here we are on your podcast. 
couple weeks later. It's crazy because, you know, you're in the industry so long, you're, you're bound to, to bump into people. And, and I always say flag out if there's a camera crew and find out who they are, what they're doing, you know, why they're there, because you never know how this all synergy works together. Right. So can we share with them the trick to talking to the film industry without interrupting the film industry? There's, there's golden rules here, right? You don't go up to the director when he's rolling. You don't go up to a celebrity when they're getting ready to do their, their job because they're in character usually. You usually go to a grip that's kind of hanging on the truck, just not really doing anything. They're in between, you know, first team, second team switching up. And so you can ask somebody or even a PA or a key set or somebody security and say, hey, what's going on? And usually they're pretty forthcoming letting you know what's going on. And then you ask for the second, second AD. The second AD is usually pretty darn busy with paperwork and, and being called out by the first AD and kind of really hair is being pulled out. But that second, second AD usually is just handling talent. Uh, whether it be background or whether it be, you know, first first team. And so you ask, and, and I've gotten so good, I can look at your radio and I can know what position you're in without even reading that little piece of tape on the radio. You can tell by the way they wear their headset. You can tell by the way they're communicating. And again, for you, I think my favorite channel to listen to is the Teamsters or the Grips because <laughs> they don't hold back. But they hate it when producers are on their channel, and they know when we're on their channel. I know, and we always flip over. I always flip over, and I'm on their channel, and then I flip back over, back and forth. Yeah, it's fun. It's fun. They hate when we do it, but it's fun. Just know, Eugene E and anybody in the Teamsters, we are listening because you're more entertaining than most. Do not go on the channel one or two because that's the busy. That's the 405. That's where everything's happening and going down. And never key. I keyed one time. That means you had your your. I basically was leaning on a car door and my radio was on, that's keen. And I was picking up one of the actors and I was a key set PA and I was driving this beautiful picture car. I was driving a set and say, hey, you know, you like the hoopty? Let's go for a ride. He's like, ah, I think we're supposed to go to set. And I'm like, ah, don't worry about it. You know, let's just go for a loop. Well, I was keen to the whole crew, the directors, the producers and everybody. So we pull up and everybody's just doing this, looking at us. Like, <laughs> And the first thing he pulls me aside, he's like, next time you want to break the rules, make sure your radio's off. And I'm like, what? Yeah, like, yeah. The whole time. I was like, oh, what did I say? And he's like, well, you were definitely not doing what you're supposed to be doing. But they didn't fire me. <laughs> they didn't fire me. But That's lucky. That means you, 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 uh, you ingratiated yourself beforehand. So the little like. <laughs> oh, I, yeah. I, they all wish they could have done what I did. You know, like, but no one would do it because it's not, it, it's stupid, but. But it's one of the highlights of, of my uh, my acting out here, my producing, and, and just being in Hollywood. Hollywood's supposed to be fun. We get so serious in this business. And it's like, when it stops being fun, I don't know that you should do it. Because it's a brutal job. We do 10 to 16-hour days every day. One day off, maybe. And then we're on the next job. We're always in the unemployment line looking for our next job. And it's um it's a brutal gig. If you don't like what you do, I, I don't recommend doing it. You gotta, you gotta have fun. You gotta find where right. the fun is. And and just one person can ruin a set. Just one negative, like nasty person can just ruin it for everyone, and make it not fun to play the game of putting this entertainment. Yeah, well, I saw you're a line producer, and I think as a line producer and as an EP, it's our job to know who plays nice together. Like I wouldn't hire an A-list star that's a hundred thousand dollars a day to work on a no budget, low budget, because they're just not going to get what they need. They're not going to get the right trailer, the right food, the right attention, the right assistant, 
It just doesn't make sense. And so if they're grumpy, it makes sense. They're, they're, they become accustomed to a certain way of filmmaking. So I don't usually try to go from big boys down or big girls down. I try to go and work our way up. Well, I'll give somebody that's a second AD uh, a first AD position. You know, I'll give someone that's a, um, uh, a DP, a director's position, and let them learn on my dollar at an increment, not at like a PA all the way to EP. Like that's a, that's not a, I wouldn't suggest that unless they're funding. Let's talk about that. Cause we haven't actually touched upon that in this podcast. Um, moving your way up through the production ranks, you know, what do you look for to bump that second AD to a first AD position? What do you look for in a cinematographer um, you know, camera A to that DP position. Passion. Without a doubt, it's passion. Their desire to want to learn. Their desire not to ask for a bigger paycheck. They're willing to maybe work at their... I mean, it's when we're in the unions, you just you have to do what the union says. But in the independent world where I predominantly work, and I do both, but um, as far as behind the camera, that work. As an actor, I'm SAG after the whole nine yards, AGVA, blah, blah, blah. But as in the producing side, enthusiasm, desire. I look at their reels. I look at their resume. I, I hang out with them at lunch. I get to know them. And I, I'm the guy that, you know, I'm known for giving people a shot. Like I've helped so many people in this industry, both I'm an acting coach now, and I've helped a lot of actors become famous, very famous actors that you would definitely know who they are. And you watch them daily on television and, and feature films. I've had the blessing of coaching them. I've also had the blessing of giving people in the industry with no experience, uh, a little bit of coaching and letting them fall forward like people have for me on my sets because it's somebody helped me. Somebody gave me a shot. Many people gave me a shot. And if I wasn't going to give back, like somebody gave back to me, this industry, we'd all be stuck in our, you know, low level positions forever because unless you have the money, you really don't have any power. You, you, it comes the money, the check writers, that's the power. So I let people fall forward as they've helped me. So, you know, if you're listening Reach out to me. Reach out to Leslie, and and we'll, I'm sure Leslie would. She's she was so sweet. She was on set. She's the boss, and she's on set, and she took time to talk to me. And you know, you don't find a lot of people like that because it's a stressful business we're in. Well, you know, my philosophy is you always take care of the crew. You always make time to talk to people, even if you're busy. You know, you're not too busy to solve a problem, so you're not too busy to to briefly talk to somebody. If you can't have a long conversation, you know, I always say put a pin in that. Get to me when we're eating. <laughs> And I'll talk to you about it then. Um, but let's talk about your um, one of your many hats that you wear, uh, which it, yeah, I know which, which you have a hat on. Um, but show running and show running for reality, which is totally different than show running for, let's say, you know, sitcoms or dramas. Uh, but the similarities there, there's similarity crossovers between that. So. Talk to us on really what a showrunner does, because a lot of people listen in and they don't really understand the gravity and the mechanics of that position. Well, so reality television has changed a lot. And I know you've been in the business a while. When I first started as an actor in reality, I made my living solely as a reality actor for 10 years. And every morning I would show up and they would give me a script. And I said, I thought this was reality. Why am I learning lines like I'm on a sitcom? They said, shut up, learn your lines, and do your job. And don't tell anybody. It's it, They've been outed so many times now. And now we actually have non-scripted reality or scripted reality 
or loosely based reality. But when I came up, it was full-blown scripted reality situations. And I was usually playing a character that couldn't show up to set. They, they got the you know, cold feet last minute. I had to learn who they were, become them, and, and save the money because the production was still going to shoot and they needed the talent. So I would become somebody else. And that was the beginning of my reality. I fell in love with the process and eventually it got raw and raw in it. And it, it, it went from reality to tabloid reality. It went to sensationalism. How, how much drama can we create? It became, you know, um, you know, Povich show. It became all these reality shows that take the turn to like sensationalism. And I didn't like that. So I pulled out of that. I think the last reality show I did was Millionaire Matchmaker. Uh, I helped develop Temptation Island. I did every dating game there ever was from Love Connection to uh, Three's a Crowd to a dating game to, I mean, any, you can see my resume, it's on IMDb, but I've done everything. And I, so I know by being on set, you learn by through osmosis. Today's reality, where we have showrunners and we're, we're the lower end showrunning, our budgets, like I saw your crew, I was like, whoa, this is a big budget. And your guys are like, not really. I'm like, it's bigger than what we get. We get one camera one sound guy, an EP, and the talent, and go. And we shoot for a weekend. We shoot the entire season in one weekend, and we edit them to 15-minute bite-sized content, and then we release them, and then we get fun- we get funded up front from the network. Uh, my business partner is Cindy Villarreal. She's, uh, she's been doing this for 10, 15, 20 years now. She's a third-party showrunner at Viacom. Viacom now is Paramount, Paramount Plus. We all know it as CBS, MTV, BET, all the channels, they're the big boys in, in reality. And so I'm always on set with her. She's the key, she's the showrunner where she's responsible. And here's your question. A showrunner is responsible for absolutely everything. So when they get the money, they're responsible for delivering. They don't care if you go over budget or under budget. They really don't care. It's your job to deliver everything. So any director that comes in, any actor, any writer, any producer, no. The showrunner overrides all of it because their butt is on the line. So they, as far as, I mean, everything. So the, And they usually don't have the money they need to make the show. They really usually don't have that money. So, you know, when I see four cameras, five cameras on your set, I'm like, well, that could have went to something else. But you are at a level in your show running where you can have four cameras on your sets and you still can make your day and have a whole week to shoot maybe one episode. We don't get that in our world. But at the end of the day, it, it's all about delivery dates, and you must make your date. Never ever miss a date. Don't miss, go get in early if you can. But they're always going back and forth with network. Network's going to make notes. You have to make your edits. And now you're over budget. Network's making more notes. You have to make your edits, and now it's coming out of your pocket. So showrunning is not like the glamour job that it might sound like. And a lot of times, showrunners in sitcoms are writers. They're the ones that write the show. They're responsible for making the show you know, hit their numbers, you know, getting the audience, et cetera, et cetera. But in reality television, it's about making your day and making your date, getting your show on the air. Now, the last two shows that we produce, Cindy and I, and all of her team and everybody over there at Viacom and Awesomeness TV and all the, you know, it's there's, there's a whole tier of people that there's a hierarchy. But those two shows were breaking, you know, 10,000, 20,000 an episode. And they were, you first start out on YouTube and then from YouTube, you go to like Awesomest and then Awesomest, maybe CBS and then CBS, maybe you get picked up on Netflix, right? But so when you, when you're hitting numbers like 10 and 20 and up a thousand per episode, you're kind of, you're kind of sought after, you know, 
you found you found a niche and then you try to stay in your lane and so it's just having a good picker so long-winded answer but they're a little different in situational comedies than in non-scripted yeah no that's that's good and 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 really um in the reality world, if there is some scripting, that showrunner will either do it themselves to, you know, because they're able to do that, or they'll bring in, you know, a very young writer that may be non-union to slam together what the written text and format of that particular episode is going to be that pushes us into the next episode. We, we kind of have an idea of our story, right? And the trick is without manipulating your actors to give you the story, you're trying to capture in your camera with four cameras, the story that you had ahead of time. Now, not with manipulating them, but you're hoping that there is a little action, a little something happens, a little dialogue happens. Maybe somebody's not happy. Maybe somebody gets hot and you have a camera by that situation and you capture it. We call it, it's either you see it, then you say it, or you say it, you must see it. That's our rule of thumb. So if you said it, we need to show it somewhere. If you, if you, if we see it, we need to do an ITM in the moment or on the fly OTF. And we need to get a chair down somewhere and we need to interview you in the moment. What just happened? And then we slam those experience, what happened, experience, what happened, experience, what happened. That's kind of our formula. I don't know if that's the same for you. For this particular show I was doing was different, but I'm very familiar with that formula. Um, And so I think what people may have a misunderstanding about reality shows is it is all on the fly. You know, it is just you capture it. But a lot of this goes into the casting of it. You know, you're casting conflicting human beings that hopefully when put into a strained situation will explode or will bond or will team up against someone else. And so, exactly. And so that casting is also really a key component in the delivering of that show concept um, with some writing along the way, because I'm not saying that the showrunners don't pull some of those people aside going, hey, listen, you know, I, I really need you to go after this person. You know, if you felt that bad, you should go after them, you know, kind of instigating the fire, so to speak. Well, what, what we do when we pitch, because we pitch shows as well as showrunners, is we pitch characters. You can put any character, like you said, in any situation that could be volatile or not or loving or whatever your, your theme is. But it's the characters that the networks buy. And if you go back and look at any show, any sitcom, any feature film, anything, it is the characters. You know, we can put them in any situation. Um, and look at the Kardashians. We all know they're queen, king and queen of reality. And they've been on longer than any sitcom, any feature film, any television show, with exception to The Simpsons, which is animated. They are the longest running show in television history live, not reruns like Lucille Ball, live, current new episodes. They're, the, they're, they're king and queen. Why? That's the Kardashians. They're, I mean, they're, they're, all, they're characters. We're buying the characters. You know, so every note's been played on the piano, right? But how do you play the notes? Right, exactly. Good. Um, but now you um, are also um, doing a lot of um, acquisitions for a distribution company. Now, I also, you know, sell to acquisitions people 
but let's talk about what are you looking for? Are you um, going around to film festivals? Are you really just consuming a lot of you know content? And what are you looking for specifically that stands out where you go, oh my gosh, this is absolutely what I need to acquire. And I know that you're dealing with, you know, a listers and, and everything in between. Well, it's, it's, it's a wonderful learning curve. But when I first started, um, I sold my first feature film to Warner brothers and it was a talking head documentary. We don't do talking head documentaries, which means you sit in a chair, put the lights on like a news show and you talk to them and then you add some, some content. The, it was the last of its kind. It was called three magic words. It was 10 years ago. And that film today is still making money. It was the follow-up to The Secret, which made $4 billion with a B dollars. And this Three Magic Words is still generating its income. Um, it's called Three Magic Words. And I took it to Warner Brothers through my distribution company. And they said, well, what's the Three Magic Words? And I said, well, I'm not going to tell you. And they're like, well, you want us to be the distributor? I'm like, watch the movie. And they're like, you know we don't watch movies. And I'm like, I know you don't watch movies, but you're going to watch this one or I'm not going to go with you. And they're like, we're Warner Brothers. Because of my confidence and because of that question, the the acquisition guy went home and watched it because he really wanted to know what were the three magic words. And he said, if that worked on me, it's going to work on the world, which it has. And so we've made it the point not to tell anybody what the three magic words are. And then when they watch it, they come back and go, oh, my God, that was mind-blowing. And so you have to come up with concepts that are unique to itself. And you have to have the confidence as a distributor because it nobody knows. Like I've had the blessing of, of talking to some of the greatest director and producers on the planet, one of them being Bob Zemeckis. We know him as Robert Zemeckis. And, and I ask him, you know, why do you put so much energy into all of your new film releases that you know they're going to be blockbusters? And he said, that's the funny thing, Tony. I don't know that. I said, but you're Bob Zemeckis. And he's like, I wouldn't be the name that you think I am had I not put the same energy into every single film I do. So even the greatest of the great work really, really hard. They, they can't rest on their laurels. And so that was a huge learning curve for me that you never arrive. You never arrive. It's a process from writing, from concept writing, soup to nuts, making the film, getting, well, getting the financing, making the film, editing the film, distributing the film, whether it's the festival market or the big, you know, release it. You know, I've had movies released at the Cannes Film Festival. I've had movies released at Sundance. I've had movies released in a local theater. We call that four-walling. And everyone is the same process. You, you just never know who's going to buy your film or who's going to identify with it. So first it has to come from how do you feel about it? It's a feeling. Does it feel right for me? Do I enjoy it? Do I think there's a target audience? And then you assess all that. And then we give it the green light. I have a lot of relationships in this industry over 26 years, and I just call up my friends. And some say yes and some say no. And that's it, all networking in L.A. We, we joke, L.A. is networking and New York is, you know, don't call us, we'll call you. And L.A. is, hey, we're going to call you. And they never do. <laughs> well, now you're the West Coast Director of Acquisitions for Blair Wood Entertainment. So, well, so when, when that resume came out, I was the West Coast Acquisitions. And then I moved over to my own company, which we started, Life Force Cindy Films. And now I'm the um, Acquisitions Director for that. And then uh, Cindy's at Majestic Entertainment, which is her company. And Cindy works for Stage 32, and she's a script uh, reader, and she gives uh, you know lots of great quality feedback, and a lot of times they want her to show around her shows. So we, because we're involved in so many different organizations, um, I worked with um, Victor Elizaldi at Viva Pictures for a long time. We have people over at Grindstone, which is the lower, well, we call it the lower version of Lionsgate. You got to make your numbers, right? YouTube, um, Grindstone, Lionsgate, 
you know, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta make your, you gotta hit your numbers. That's just the bottom line. It's networking. Okay. And when you are looking at something to acquire, what is the thing that stands out? Are you looking for, you know, production value, um, acting, writing, directing the Holy grail of all of them? You know, can you maybe, mm, maybe, uh, loosen up, the production value if the story and the acting is amazing. So what are you looking for? It's funny you say that. When I was coming up as an actor, we did a play. And we did a play at a church where there was a pillar holding the building up in the center of the stage. And I said to the director, how are we going to do a play with that being center stage? And he says, that thing will disappear as long as you don't reference it. But the second you lean on it, all of a sudden, like Star Trek, the pole just appears. It had always been there. Nobody sees it. So I, I use that analogy for production quality. We will forgive the production quality and the budget if the performances are there, if the storyline is there, if the dialogue, what the writer wrote is there. We'll forgive that white pole in the center. But as soon as, you know, let's say you have a big budget project, you have horrific acting, horrible writing, that post is so bright, there's a spotlight on it, and it's it's unforgivable. Production value doesn't matter. So I look for performances based on um, emotional connection. I look for writing that's not one-dimensional. It's not cliche. A lot of writers are cliche. I really recommend not being cliche and playing against the grain and opposites and, and taking a risk and trying something. And, and don't just try to put a cookie-cutter movie out like a horror film that you think, well, it's going to make money. I'm doing this to make money. Don't make movies to make money. I mean, yes, yeah, it's a business. It's called show business. But when you really get into it, make a movie that's passionate for what you feel and you care about. And, and don't worry about your – I'm not saying be stupid about who your audience is. you gotta, you got to understand the business. But inside of that business parameter, you got to come from honesty and truth and, and what you care about and artistic integrity and, and all that wonderful – we're artists. This is an art form. Don't forget we're artists. And a lot of times – and I love my lawyers – but a lot of times when the lawyers become the bosses and the bean counters and the bottom dollars and the green lighters, you, you tend to lose – what films used to be back in the day, which the long walking, you know, silent shot, like No Country for Old Men, where it took how many minutes before the first line of dialogue even came out. And I love Josh Brolin, his dear friend, and he, you know, he killed his performance. Well, everything he does, he's amazing. But I, that was one of the movies that really stuck out to me that there's not a word being said, and there's so much being said, you know, and so that's what I look for. I look for really quality performances and you don't have to be a, a a-list actor for that nor do you have to have a lot of money to do that you can take your cell phone and make movies today and i've sold movies that were made on cell phones there's no excuse for not being a creative artist if you're a creative artist take what you got and go the john cassavetti style well let's talk about where distribution is you know heading um you know since post-covid it's a wonky wild west on distribution <clears throat> you know, content is king right now. Uh, people are hungering for good content. And um, not only from the studios, right, but also in the independent world. Are you seeing that maybe there is a pocket right now that if the independent can create something really substantial, acting, storytelling-wise that that content will become king on 
platforms and where do you see distribution going in the next three to five years after this wonky wild west of post-COVID? That's a great question. There's a lot of hot spots in there, a lot of uh, places that we can try to hit really quick. Um, during COVID, there were still film festivals happening um, online on Zoom, but then there also was, uh, when we first started to open up, we, you know, we started, I think it was like the Berlin Film Festival in Hong Kong, and I don't, I think can skipped one. And then, you know, we get in Tribeca and, you know, we go around the globe, end up at AFM. But um, I was getting calls from my distributors, boots on the ground, going, Tony, there's nothing here. No one made movies during the pandemic except one group. One group that I know of continued to make movies, and that was the Gorilla Filmmakers, and that was, we called them Urban Films, and they were a lot of them were being made in Oakland, and um, I'm sure down, you know, in the South, and, and you know, filmmakers that just said we're you know we're not sag or we're not union anyways we're just gonna go make guerrilla films and so i had a bunch of an access to a bunch of those films so i started getting calls from content and i started submitting those films to all these distributors and those films started just getting eaten up i mean they were people were giving them a hundred thousand dollars cash they were giving a half a million dollars cash just they weren't really giving you upfront money back in the day they were buying these films for just the initial upfront cash and then their residuals and back end points, et cetera, et cetera. But what it turned out to be during the BLM movement, we all know um, the LBGTQ plus uh, movements became very dominant and in, in our public awareness as well in our filmmaking. And so those films are highly sought after at the moment, but just like in the horror film era, when Grindstone came out or with um, um, all the, uh, saw and all those franchises came out we got a saturation of horror films and too much there wasn't enough places to place them there was too many and so then they started only taking the films that had the a-list actors in it and and that were there wasn't enough blood enough gore enough this enough that enough uniqueness and so there's a point and called a pendulum there's a point when it swings back and forth so we've done the dark we've done the horror we've done the urban we've done the lbgtq it's swinging back to family, faith, old school content like the Waltons, the Brady Bunch. I'm not saying that 70s style, but the fam where the families can feel safe to have the family watch it. That's one that's coming out. It's still the dark, good versus evil, dark versus white. There's still tons of horror films. There's still um, avenues for, I mean, there's so many outlets now. Just for your podcast, there's tons of outlets. Viewers are watching content on so many different devices and in so many different ways. But we know with Top Gun, Maverick, we're back, our butts are back in the theaters. Thank God, thanks Tom Cruise. They're back in the theaters and, and they're watching movies and they're paying top dollar to watch movies again. Well, I don't know if they're really back in the theaters, but you know, that hit a they demographic. Were for Top Gun, did you well, see those numbers? I saw the numbers, but, but I think Top Gun had a couple of things really going for it. One, you know, it's a sexy movie, right? It's got guns and planes and sexiness. Uh, but it's also pulling in those baby boomers who already knew that franchise from before and had lived through that experience when they were in, you know, high school. So you're pulling in that demographic who then are bringing in their kids. So they're pulling in that the, the Gen Z's. Um, little bit of some of the alphas 
And, and so that exponentially, you know, brought in that Gen Z baby boomer combo target market that was the perfect storm for him. And they did an awesome job on the script. I mean, the script was phenomenal. And, and especially for those that knew the previous movie, it really buttoned all those Every single one of the elements in that first movie were buttoned out on that second one. So it was a perfect yeah, this story. This was his masterpiece. This, this was, was his Titanic. This, this was, this was, an, um, this was a really, really well done, you know, follow-up film. It was well thought out. The distribution model, they waited years and years to release this. They knew exactly what they were doing, their target audience. In the, in the distribution world, you have to be very careful because it is such a volatile and fragile um, distribution platform. We use it now almost as a commercial. We'll put it in the theaters for a week just to let people know that they didn't see it. They missed it. And then they'll go to Netflix or you know Amazon or wherever they watch their, their content from. But it's so expensive to do a theatrical release. You got It starts million, two, three million dollars on low budget films to do a theatrical release properly. We have to four wall in the TMZ zone, which is the 30 mile zone is what that stands for. And you have to really, each individual theater you have to address and pay attention to. And theater owners are dying. It's a dying dinosaur. It's unfortunate. And they made all their money from popcorn sales. That's why popcorn sales are so expensive. And so they they weren't really making any money because they had to pay for the licensing to show the the reels and it, it it was it's just brutal brutal so they started having local theater they started having local bands play at the movie theaters they were looking for i mean they were looking for anything to just bring people back to the theater but you know we that love films love that way of watching movies in the dark with other people a big screen the anticipation like that's like listening to an album on a vinyl record versus a CD or, you know, MPEG or however we listen to music. It's there's a warmth to it that you can't get any on your cell phone. Right. But are we going to die out in the theaters? Are the releases from the big studios only going to be that first, you know, exclusive one or two weeks? And then they're opening up to the different platforms, the OTT platforms that they either they own or others. What is your opinion on where we're going? I think just like the unions, the producers guild and SAG after have to negotiate to keep their, you know, keep actors happy and keep producers happy. I think we're going to have to negotiate with theater companies as they're a dying realist. They're real estate. That's what they do. They own real estate and they're going to have to work with the, and the filmmakers are going to have to work with them in order not to, you know, not to kill the theater chains and, and maybe lower the, the, the revenue or lower the uh, licensing fees so that they can afford to maybe not have sold out movie theaters and, and, and allow like Quentin Tarantino does with his, you know, he owns a bunch of movie theaters and he loves to bring in the old classics, plays a lot of his own, his own classics here in LA on, you know, Beverly, if you're ever in LA, come check out his theater. I love it. But I think it's going to have to, we're just going to have to work together, producers, actors, and all these Everything that goes into the, even the actors that take these huge paychecks, we're all going to have to work together to keep this medium uh, alive. Now we all know vinyl is not cost effective, but vinyl made a huge comeback. And there's a lot of kids. You know, we have triplets here that are 19. I, you know, watched them grow through all their teens and just fell in love. They fell in love with vinyl. Those kids fell in love with 
you know, the rock bands like Led Zeppelin and Jimi Hendrix. And it's like, who introduced you to that stuff, right? It wasn't because they were playing live shows. So everything has, I think, a second and third shelf life. And so I really believe the movie theaters are not, you know, Martin Scorsese says it's a dead medium, but I think as he knew it, but I don't think it's going away, just like vinyl's not going away. But that's my own professional opinion. I think it might have to morph itself into a more dynamic experience. You know, I think the experience of you seeing it with others, but maybe in a more relaxed environment with food and blankets and pillows and, you know, with some of these, yeah, with some of these theaters that are offering a more, you know, um, intimate uh, viewing experience in a group of people, an intimate experience within a larger group of people might be where they're changing this to. Well, in the metaverse, right? You know what's happening where you're watching movies with your metaverse, you know, whatever device you're using for your virtual reality or your augmented reality experience. We're making films just for the metaverse. Right. That they'll have that um, real 3D experience live feeling the film around them and emerging them into that experience. You know, it may be leading it that way, but I think the, I think the quantity of theatrical out there, those cinemas are going to start thinning down and only the, I think the, the more clever ones are going to survive. You know, I have friends that say the middle in any organization, the middle, right? So you want the viewer and you want the filmmaker, they're going to merge. So the theater and the filmmaker might might have direct relationships in all the middle. If you look at, you know, what's happening with like the unions and, and what happened in the music industry and the modeling industry, and, and you start watching the industries and how they're trying to survive while the middle is diminishing. Same thing with the middle class. It's just happening everywhere. And I have a bunch of advisors in my world because we do spend millions and millions of dollars on projects. We need to really understand, you know, you just don't waste a million dollars. You don't, you, you got to have advisors that understand the market and what's going on. And so I do talk to a lot of people before we take a project on or before we make a project or before we spend somebody's money. But there's also the, um, you remember in um, Star Wars where R2-D2 projected Princess Leia in the hologram there's hologram theaters here in hollywood uh i think it's hollywood boulevard and they actually give you the experience of passed on musicians performing in a hologram experience on stage and it's mind-boggling so i see films could be holograms they could be augmented reality virtual reality they could be um, experiences like the terminator at universal when they blew air in your face and the seats vibrated and and you can have a full sensory experience, and that could be the next leg of film watching. That could be the next leg. Um, briefly, let's just uh, chat. You are also writing. You've got a couple of screenplays out there. You want to share any of those, um, you know, where those kernels of the ideas came from? The Ultimate Chess Move and, and Humble Pie, two totally separate projects. Humble Pie came from um, a heartbreak, and I just decided to bury myself into writing, and through a catharsis process, I came up with a really unique, something I've never heard or seen or read before. And it came out through me as if each day I wrote, I was typing and I was like, I wonder how it's going to play out. Like I didn't think it out. I just allowed my fingers to work and I, I called it a very spiritual experience. And, and this is the story that came out of it as if God was talking through me, right? Not trying to be presumptuous, but something magical was definitely happening. 
And uh, so that's one way of writing. The other way of writing is structure, character backstories, arcs, you know, first, second, third, fourth acts. And I did that with the ultimate chess move. That's a suspense thriller. That's a that's a mind like whodunit type of thing, Agatha Christie. But the the humble pie is a very unique look at very metaphysical approach uh, to life. And both, I think, are really good projects. And I end up working on other people's projects before I end up doing my own passion projects. I think a lot of artists are like that. We have our day job, which brings in the bread and butter. And then eventually we'll do our own passion projects. So those two are maybe, you know, maybe be the last chapter if I'm lucky enough to, to make those projects. But they're true and dear to my heart. And they, they really are special. And we'll see. We'll see when those get made. But in the meantime, I'm making your projects. <laughs> there you go. Uh, okay, so what is a dirty little Hollywood? Two last questions. A dirty little Hollywood secret that you wish you had known, but you've discovered along your travels. Hollywood's cutthroat. Just like the bar business and the, the nightclub restaurant business is cutthroat, Hollywood is incredibly cutthroat. Keep your friends close and your enemies closer. Um, they'll turn on you when, when there's money on the table, they'll turn on you in a dime and they will stab you in the back. And unfortunately, I've had to experience that way too many times. And and it's just, I pray for people like that and I wish them the best and I want them to have the most success in the world and I would never wish anything bad on them. But just stay out of my way. Just stop trying to trip. It's hard enough to make a movie as it is. It's hard enough to get funding as it is. Why would you try to stop somebody, good or bad, no judgment? Just let people be artists. So yeah, it's a business. And it's, it's almost like a mafiosa business, you know? So that's the dirty little secret is beware who you're networking with because it is like having a, a, a marriage. You're, you are married to whoever you have business with. So that, that's probably... Last one, a bit of advice for young people coming up through the ranks. What would be your tidbit of advice? Drop the ego at the door. Take a lower position like a PA, key set PA, background actor, and watch, watch what people do and learn. Be willing to pick up that piece of garbage, even if it's not your job. Like do things that are you call we might think are beneath us, and and just be gift, be a be a gift to when you show up. Somebody remembers like that guy was just that girl was just such a delight to be around. Leave them knowing that you're a wonderful person, and they're going to give you shots. The real secret is networking. Collect numbers. Don't bug them. Don't talk to celebrities when they're eating with their family, but get to know anybody you have a chance. So everyone's just, we're all just people get to know them. And a lot of the people that have had a lot of great experiences want to share those experience with, with people that haven't because it makes, and I'll include myself, it makes us feel good that we've done so much because it's such a hard industry that somebody wants to know what I've done. Somebody wants to know what I have to offer. It gives us, you know, there's just something special and it makes us feel good. And if it me at my level, it makes me feel good. What do you think it would be for like Robert Downey Jr. or some of these amazing A-list actors? Just because they have films that we all get to see and they're worth millions and millions of dollars, they're still human beings and they still want to be appreciated. So, you know, just give love. You'll get so much love back. Just give love and do more than you think you should be doing. And you're going to have a really long career in Hollywood. Excellent. Um, shout out any of your socials for uh, people uh, listening in that want to contact you for, you know, advice or acting coaching or whatever. 
Well, we have a school called BSA Live. It's Boldy School of Acting. You can find that anywhere on the internet. I go by Tony Boldy, T-O-N-Y, B as in boy, O-L-D as in dog, I. And all my social media is on that. So Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube, everything. Just put my name in, Google search. You'll actually find out that some people even call me the People's Mayor of Hollywood, which was something that happened 10 years ago, which has been quite a fun little journey. But um, it's just it's just kind of a fun little nickname. Excellent. Thank you so much for coming on Best in Fest. And for those that are listening in for the first time, we have a video component on our YouTube channel, La Femme uh, International Film Festival YouTube channel, or and or make sure you rate us and like us and DM us if you want to uh, suggest somebody that we should interview. I want to thank Tony Boldy for coming on Best in Fest. Mm-hmm.